you found the Knight's Chapel podcast. I'm James Nelson. The truth exists. It can be known. And he is seeking you. Doctrine, apologetics, devotion, inspiration, eschatology, and the beating heart of the Savior. That's what I envision this podcast being about. I grew up in a certain very conservative, uh, mainstream Christian tradition. And there was a particular approach to these subjects, in particular, doctrine, apologetics, and eschatology. And that was very uh, data-based, very academic, um, even sometimes fearful. And while I understand that these subjects may be somewhat fearful for people that are outside of the faith, um, this was also applied to people who were inside the faith. And when I say faith, I should define my terms. Um, I am coming from a very Baptistic background, uh, independent, fundamental, King James only, uh, pre-tribulational rapture sort of a background to give you a flavor. Um, and when we would talk about these subjects, it was either data-based uh, in the sense that it was academic or uh, in the terms of eschatology, it was like somebody was always trying to scare you. And yet when I read scripture, um, while there is uh, consequences for all of our choices, to those who are in Christ, we read from the epistles of Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We furthermore see in Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, where he says that uh, we are not appointed unto wrath. And I'm, it's sad to me that these things almost have to even be discussed. Uh, if we have fled to Christ for mercy, why then are we fearful of his wrath? Either you're in Christ or you're not. So my stress in this podcast is, is that I want to take all of the data points that were doctrinally and properly correct and combine them with the heart that Scripture itself tells us was present when the Savior was uh, going about his business, when the uh, apostles were penning these things for our benefit. Um, we can't miss the beating heart of Jesus Christ in all of these truths. And if we do, we have at least missed half of what is there for us. I'll give you an example. Um, if anyone has seen the movie, uh, The Man from Snowy River, there's something about this that's incredibly compelling. And, and quite often, I think that we miss why these symbols are so compelling. For those that haven't seen the movie, it's about a forbidden love between a, a, a young man and a young woman, uh, sort of a Romeo and Juliet effect, except that it's very Western. And in the story, um, he's forbidden to have any relationship with this young lady by her father, but there's an avenue that's provided. And the avenue is, is that if, if he can, uh, round up this mob of horses that, uh, he'll be considered a man and he'll have, uh, he'll, he'll be considered for wedding the father's daughter. Uh, and they're in love anyways. So as it happens, um, he, he does this. He does what no one else can do. Uh, he has a mixed breed horse, uh, and, and where everybody has to stop when this mob of horses goes over the cliff, everyone else has to stop. You hear this whip crack and he goes nearly vertical down this cliff, accomplishing what no one else can do to bring in this mob of horses. And at the end, he says, he stakes his claim and he says, there's so many uh, good uh, horses in that mob and I'm going to be back for them and for whatever else is mine. And he 
casts this look at the father to let him know that he loves his daughter and that he's going to become he's going to come back uh, to marry her um and and because they're in love and that the old hates need to die and that there's going to be healing and there's going to be a future and there's going to be a love and family and all those sorts of things well that is just like my jesus and you'll forgive me if i'm a little bit personal about it because he can maybe he's your Jesus too, but he's my Jesus, and and that needs to be personal to us, uh, not just about the data points, but about the beating, pure, passionate heart of the Savior, and that plays out throughout Scripture, even in the areas that we would normal normally think that are rather dry. Every single thing in Scripture, I believe, is trying to God is trying to reveal to us something about Himself. And when we only think of it in terms of the academic, we are missing so much that is there, and so much that He would have us have. We read through John chapter three and in verse sixteen: "For God so loved the world that He gave." his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we read through this, and it's just data points to us. Instead of stopping at the point where he talks about his love and letting that impact our hearts, I consider that down through history, there have been so many men, so many tyrants, so many would-be leaders, so many would-be world dominators, that promise peace. They have a vision for peace. And without fail, every single one of them fails. Why? Because they are not the ones who can bring peace. There is only one that can do that. Everybody's chasing the vision of the millennial reign. They want a golden age. Alexander the Great had his his view of it. Nebuchadnezzar had his view of it. Pharaoh had his view of it. Uh, Everybody throughout history, Kaiser Wilhelm, Adolf Hitler, everybody had a vision for this world peace, this utopia that would exist under their rule. Of course, it's going to be their rule, megalomaniacs that they are. But why is there no peace? Because they haven't addressed the fundamental background issue in the human condition, the sinful heart of man. And you can't have a golden age. You can't have a utopia unless and until you deal with the human condition. Enter Jesus Christ, who some 2,000 years ago entered time. Oh yeah, I'm going to get on that. He entered time. Transcendent God, who was before space and outside of time, entered time lived a perfect life died a vicarious life uh, died a vicarious death and then 3 days later rose from the grave each of these being literal he did all of it literally why because there was a point and there was a purpose the point and the purpose was his love for you and for me god quite literally would rather die than to spend eternity without you and without me. Because we're so special? No, because love is who he is. And where my very Baptistic brethren will go, amen, when when you start talking about the love of God, they almost get a little bit nervous because they're like, oh, well, you're just about that love, love, love stuff. Um, 
don't forget, love is a truth that is taught in Scripture. And if you play these things out in an imbalanced way, all you end up with is some kind of a control mechanism whereby you can put other people under your thumb. That is the Nicolaitanism discussed in Revelation 2 and 3, that Jesus, who loved the little children, who died on the cross because of love, in Revelation 2 and 3, he says that that kind of an unclean control mechanism, he hates the deeds and subsequently the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Who the Nicolaitans are and what they represented is something I'm going to get into in a later podcast. But for now, I'm going to take a tiny break and we're going to come in and discuss how God is not subject to time. transformational facts that has ever impacted my faith outside of the scriptures themselves is an understanding of the fact that God is not subject to time. Um, When we consider God's name, I am that I am, he exists perpetually in the present tense. Um, That's not just wordplay, that's fact. Um, We're accustomed to time moving us sequentially from cause to effect, and so we frame everything in that sort of a uh, paradigm. The problem is, is that that paradigm, when applied to God, starts to put God inside of a box. Infinite God now has limits. Because he has limits? No, because we, in our limited minds, are trying to compartmentalize God for our understanding instead of approaching him as he is by faith. Some years back, I had a friend of mine um, that I have much respect for say that, well, time is one of those principles of God's nature that orders things. God's not an, uh, uh, a God of chaos or confusion. He's orderly. Okay, well, I agree with that in principle, but when you start to say that time is a characteristic or character trait of God, you've made some serious assumptions. Um, one of the problems that's emerged from this is the ongoing debate between the Calvinists and Armenians, where that we try to say, well, God, God is sovereign, and we, then we define sovereignty in a particular way. We say that God is sovereign and that he uh, has predestined certain people to heaven and certain people to hell. Um, well, that's that can't be true because there's other passages of Scripture that say that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So which is it? If God is sovereign and he's not willing that any should perish, does that mean everybody's going to heaven? No, certainly not. Uh, but whosoever will may come. So it's it's in the purview of the individual to make a free will decision. We say, well, that's then God's not sovereign. Well, yes, God is sovereign because in his sovereignty, he decided to make the choice lie in our hands as to whether we will or not accept his provision on the cross for our sins. Now, when I talk about that, I should define those terms as well for those that aren't familiar with the Baptistic background and what that means. Uh, I believe, as the scripture teaches, that salvation that is to say, uh, an escape from hell and a relationship with God, uh, finding ourselves in the happy condition that we have a home in heaven that is guaranteed forever. That's what I mean when I say salvation, uh, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, let me t- define those terms. 
grace. Grace is what God gives that you can't earn and don't deserve. Okay, when in ancient times someone would approach a king or a monarch for some favor, he would say he would refer to that monarch as your grace. He was recognizing that monarch as the one who could dispense favor, whether that favor was earned, deserved, or not. Grace, by definition, is something you cannot earn and do not deserve, but is a good for you. It's a favor that you might ask for. So salvation is by grace alone. Through what? Through faith alone. Um, there are some folks that teach that uh, you can work your way into heaven. You can't work your way into heaven. If you could work your way into heaven, then grace is no more grace. It's an earning. Okay. And and what what means of exchange would you give for salvation? Uh, if you try to make it be about money, then there's going to be people that were born into poverty and live their entire lives in poverty throughout history that will not be able to gain heaven. Does God create line blocks of people that he intends, despite their best intentions or possible faith towards him, that they would go to hell? No, certainly not. So it's not about money. It's not about works. If you if you make it be about works, then what do you do with the line group of people that are physically infirmed and can never do any work? Is it about learning about the scriptures? No, it's not about learning about the scriptures. Jesus said on this very topic, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. A little child is by definition simple. They're not sophisticated. They're not knowledgeable. They're simple. But what does a little child bring to the table? Faith. Childlike, simple faith. In uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, uh, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, if there was anything you could do, apart from throwing yourself on the mercy that is represented by Jesus's cross, if there's anything you could do, then you would have somewhat to brag. There are certain institutions that want to say, well, salvation only resides within our four walls. Um, no, salvation emerges from the cross, um, and, and that is, that's the final, that's the final word on it. It, it is available to anyone who places their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do we know that it's finished? Because while he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. There was no work of man. There was no institution of man. There was no church polity that had to be added to it. When the thief on the cross looked upon Jesus and said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus looked upon him and said, this day you will be with me in paradise. That uh, fella on the cross, he didn't have the opportunity to join a church, to get baptized, circumcised, speak in tongues, or anything else. He was immediately ushered into heaven upon his death. Why? Because it was a special circumstance? No. Because if it was a special circumstance, then there would be no reason for that to be recorded for our benefit. The fact that that is recorded for our benefit is to make an example of it that this is a universal condition where when somebody recognizes that they are a sinner, they place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that in that moment, their uh, uh, 
they are as saved in one sense as they will ever need to be saved. Now, there's three senses in which a person is saved. Um, they are all affected by the cross, two of which um, are immediate, and the third, which is eventual. Uh, we are saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, if you placed your faith in a finished work of Christ, you will never go to hell, ever. Um, if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the power of sin is broken. In other words, you might sin, but now you have a choice. Um, and and, and you, can, you can, by the grace of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is extant in your life at that point, uh, you can decide you're not going to sin. Now, the third case in which we are not yet saved is we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. Uh, when we come into God's throne room, when we come into heaven, uh, and we don't have our physical bodies, we have received our glorified bodies in which uh, sin no longer has a place, then we will be free from the presence of sin. I often consider that in those first moments, I don't know if you've ever been to a chiropractor, but sometimes you go through uh, pains and you, you receive subluxations and maladjustments in your body throughout your life. And when the chiropractor begins to work on you, the relief is so profound and you don't even realize in that moment that you were in pain. But the relief is so profound that often it's want to bring a strong man to tears. I consider that in those first moments when I come into heaven, to be able to enter into those first moments where sin no longer has sway upon me, that I can think a thought, speak a word, or perform an act in which sin will not have any control over me. Oh, it brings me to tears. But I said I was going to get on about God not being subject to time. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning. That means time had a beginning. And that is true whether you accept the Bible, but if you reject the Bible and you accept uh, the Big Bang theory, time still had a beginning because in the uh, singularity, the pre-bang condition, you still had infinite, you still had the entire universe sucked down to an infinite singularity in which time could not exist. That's part of the apologetics. We'll get into it another time. But then we get into the book of Revelations where it says time shall be no more. Well, now all of a sudden we've realized that time itself is not just limiting, it itself is limited. Uh, it had a beginning, it will have an end. And God, being infinite, is not subject to those limiting conditions, those border conditions, boundary conditions. Why is any of that important? It's important because... When we start to consider the attributes of God, attributes like his love, it's not subject to time. It doesn't change with time. It but not only does God's love not change, neither does his truth. All of the attributes of God are in perfect communion and perfect harmony with each other. Even though to our mind, we kind of try to set mercy as uh, juxtaposed to uh, his, his justice and his love juxtaposed to his truth, we try to separate these things out. But to God, none of his attributes suffer in light of the others. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But how these function and how they impact our relationship with God is something that I'm going to get into in the next segment because our relationship with God impacts our sense of meaning, our purpose in this world, and our sense of identity. But there's even 
other and more important things that play into that. But we'll get into that in the next segment. reasons that it is so crucially important that we think properly about God is that it ties up what we are as how we define what it means to be a man. Being a man is tied up in a lot of things that, quite frankly, men don't typically do very well at defining. Um, women tend to be a little bit better at that in some cases, which is an odd set of circumstances, but certainly why we should take the counsel of our wives as uh, something of value. Um, and to live with our wives according to knowledge, as the Bible says, uh, that our prayers be not hindered. And in sharing that particular passage of Scripture, what we are as men plays out across our relationships. The first relationship that we want to think most about, uh, most carefully about, is our relationship to God. Uh, one of the things that is crucial to that thought process is that God is not subject to to time. Why is that relevant? Because the truths and characteristics of God and how we relate to them re uh, are, exist in eternity so that those truths do not change. They do not alter. How we relate to them becomes the gold standard by how we evaluate ourselves in light of that gold standard that is the very character of God and our relationship with him. Uh, part of that process is when we relate to God and we hope to upon, uh, you know, when, when we find ourselves on our deathbeds, as Mel Gibson and Braveheart said, in many years from now, you know, dying in our beds, will you give all the days from this? You know, the, you know, the quote, finding meaning in your life has to come from something that is less transient, that is more eternal, more permanent. It's in the permanency of our relationship with God, that meaning is established. I want to say that again because that's really important. It is in the, the permanency, the immutability of the character of God that the meaning of our lives, as we relate to him, as we impact the world, it's how our identity is established. So we have three things that we're talking about. We have meaning, we have purpose, and we have identity. Meaning is who are we before God? Who are we before a permanent and unchanging standard? And when we're on our deathbeds, will that be something that we take satisfaction in or shame? Will there be regret or will there be a sense of accomplishment? That's the question we want to ask ourselves with regards to meaning. Purpose. 
purpose is how that meaning plays out in time, in this life, how we impact the world with our gifts. That's an important thing. I don't know if we'll have time to get in that, into that today, but how we walk in our particular giftings. And I don't mean that necessarily in a Pentecostal sense, but we all have gifts and we need to be careful that we walk in our giftings in a way that serves God and other people. Um, there's a stewardship to that. But again, that's something we need to get into at another time. Then there's this idea of identity. After we're dead and gone, what is on our tombstone? And by that, I mean what other people say you or I were about is going to be determined in how we played out our purpose. All of these things, our purpose is determined by how we walked in our giftings. Within that, we need to be cognizant of who was the giver of these gifts. You cannot walk in your gift apart from walking with the giver of your gift. That impacts your purpose in life. And all of that emerges from the meaning. When God spoke you into existence, what did he mean when he spoke your name? You, and I do mean you, are God's answer to something. It may be that you you approach that in how you are dissatisfied with some injustice in the world. It may be in what you love. It may be in what you hate. But there's something that is that itch that you just have to scratch that God says, yes, that's my agency. And he, when he calls you by name, he's saying, that's my answer to it. Years back, I talked to some people about the existence of God. And they're like, well, I have a real problem with the existence of God because, you know, how do you deal with uh, children with cancer? And this particular person, he was not making excuses. Some people that talk about such things are simply making excuses. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's that they're angry at God. But this particular individual, he was sincere. And I said, you know what? I can see that that really bothers you. But let me ask you this. Have you considered that because it bothers you, it bothered God? What if you are God's answer to X, Y, or Z? Have you considered that? And while you're busy blaming God, you're not doing anything about the problem. And, and, and this particular individual, there's little chance that he was ever going to be a doctor, so he's not going to come up with a cure for cancer, but he could start a foundation that started collecting money for research, for this, that, or the other. We each have something that really bothers us about the world or that we really love and we, and we are irresistibly attracted to that thing or ir irresistibly repulsed by that thing. And so sometimes those things that compel us, those things that we even may want to blame God for, consider this. What if it bothered God too? He sent you into the world to be his agency against that thing. Something to think of. On that note, you folks have a wonderful uh, evening, morning, wherever you're, whenever you're listening to this. And just remember that the truth exists. It can be known. And he is seeking you.